You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Nehemiah chapter 3 is where we're going to be. And don't stand tonight. I'm going to have you stay seated. And uh, we're... It's a long passage, a long chapter, and not really look, it's just a different kind of message tonight, and uh, want to look really at the whole chapter in summary, and uh, as you'll see, it's, it's for tonight's purposes in some ways not all that important that we read every name or re- read everything that's taking place, so I'll give you kind of a summary as we go through, but Nehemiah chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Good to have uh, Brother Jerry Meyer here with us tonight, and pastors at down in Canton, and he's visiting here tonight, and uh, making sure that, that we're doing what we ought to around here, making sure Miss Marlis is taking care of business, and you know, doing, she's keeping us all in line, brother, so we're in good shape, so I'm grateful for, uh, for him being here tonight. Nehemiah chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Uh, I've been, I have been able on a few occasions to visit Washington, D.C., how many in here have ever been to visit Washington, D.C.? We've got a number of you that have been able to go. Uh, it's, a, it's a great place to visit, incredible place to visit, actually. I, I highly recommend that every American makes a, makes a stop in Washington, D.C. And I went a couple of times as a teenager and uh, as, a, as a young teenager uh, in about seventh grade, I think, was the first time I went. Uh, little fact about your pastor is I'm a spelling nerd. I won the Wyoming State ch- uh, Spelling Championship twice and went to Washington, D.C., two full-paid trips, just so you know. Uh, most people don't brag about stuff like that. Okay, I'll stop. So I'm a, I'm a speller, I guess, at heart. Got a couple free trips. When I, my first time I went as a seventh grader, I, I was just excited to be in Washington, D.C., what was really, really cool about being there as a seventh grader is you see all these buildings and all of these monuments and all of these things uh, that you've only seen pictures of before. And to see it in real life and to realize how big things are, you know, realize how big the Lincoln Memorial is and how vast the Smithsonian the museums are. It's not just one building, it's building after building after building. And the first time I went, the first couple of times I went, I just thought it was a cool place to go see and and how big everything was, how impressive everything was. But uh, I went back a couple of times, once uh, later in high school, and then once after college as well. And what I noticed is that every time I went back, um, my appreciation for what I saw changed. In other words, the first time I went, it was all about how big it was and how impressive it was. And then the, as I got a little older, I, I found myself stopping a little bit longer at each, at each memorial to read what was written. Um, it was, and then the, when I went as a, after college, I, I spent a lot of time reading what was written. The older I got, the, the more I appreciated not just the buildings, but what the buildings meant. Uh, the, the history behind the building, and, and, and especially what I appreciated the, the older I got was how many of the inscriptions on each of those memorials pointed to God, and, and how... Um, and they may not have believed everything that we believed, and, uh, but even in Thomas Jefferson, you, he may have been a deist, as, as people might point out. But even in his uh, memorial, you read around the inscriptions around 
the Jefferson Memorial, this just always stood out to me, and all the, 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 the ways that, the things that he said pointed to God, and whether or not uh, he believed like we do, um, there was a foundation on God um, that our country was built on. And don't let people tell you that's not true, because uh, it is true. You just need to go to Washington, D.C. and read a lot of the inscriptions to find that out. Uh, the other places that caught my attention when I returned were the memorials to those who have died in battle. And I remember standing at the Vietnam Memorial, and what, it was just a sobering moment um, because I, was th- I just started reading the names, and these are names that I don't recognize. They're not names of people I ever met. Um, they're just names on a, a large uh, stone memorial, 58,000 actually, over 58,000 names on the Vietnam Memorial are listed. And you could stand there, if you started reading and, and didn't stop, it would take you three or four days to read every name. It's just name after name after name. It's a moving experience. The other sobering uh, experience and display is at the Arlington National Cemetery. And if you've ever been there, then you know it's the location of, of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And I'm not going to get into a lot of history about it, but at the, at the Arlington Cemetery, at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, there are the remains of three soldiers buried there, one from World War I, one from World War II, and another from the Korean War. And these, these uh, soldiers were, the remains of these soldiers were, were found and never claimed. They don't know the names. And so as, uh, to honor all of those that have died in battle, Unnamed, they created this, this memorial to the unknown soldiers. And the, the interesting part about the unknown soldier, the tomb of the unknown soldier, is that it's guarded 24 hours a day, year-round, 365 days a year, by the 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment. And the guards, they, they change every hour in the fall and, and winter months, and, and they change every 30 minutes in the spring and summer months. They go through this uh, very elaborate ceremony, and it's hard to describe, but, they, uh, but they, they, one guard will come in and relieve the other guard, and there's uh, a relief commander that oversees the transition, and it's amazing how precise they are in the changing of the guard. They, every step that they take is counted out. Um, they start in the right spot. They end in the right spot. Every move is choreographed to perfection. In the middle of it, they stop to honor the unknown soldiers who have been uh, bestowed uh, posthumously with a, a medal of honor. Each of those sentinels, they practice and practice and practice those steps so they do everything just right. And they're guarding the tomb of the unknown soldier because not because that tomb is really at risk of being defiled or someone coming in and causing damage to it, but they guard that tomb because of the price that was paid by the unknowns. They guard that tomb uh, in order to honor those that have given their lives and nobody even knows who they were. That's what makes the war memorial so special to me. See, some have given everything for their country. Some are named. If you go to the Vietnam Memorial, you see the names. Um, some are not named, like the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Some are known. Some are not known. Some have been awarded medals. Some have never been awarded a medal, even if they deserve it. Maybe nobody knows about their acts of valor. And in many ways, it reminds me of the nature of serving the Lord. 
It reminds me of how we serve sometimes in that some are named and some are not. Some receive attention, some receive recognition, and some don't. And Nehemiah gives us a list of those who helped build the wall in Nehemiah 3. And some are specifically named. And we could go through the list and we could see names. And part of the reason for me not reading is it's, it's a long passage, but also, too, I may be a good speller, but it doesn't mean I can pronounce all these names. You've got, in verse 1, Eliashib. Next unto him, the men of Jericho. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri. And at the fish gate, in verse 3, you have Hassaniah. Verse 4, you've got Merimoth, the son of Urijah. Verse 5, you've got next unto them the Tekoites. They were repairing. Verse 6, the old gate was repaired uh, by Jehoiada. And verse 7, you've got somebody next unto him, Melatiah and Jaden and the men of Gideon and of Mizpah. Verse 8, next unto him repaired Uziel, the son of Harhiah of the goldsmiths. And verse 9, and next unto them repaired Rephaiah, the son of Hur. And verse 10, next unto them repaired Jediah, the son of Haramaph. You've got lists and lists and names and names. And, and verse 12 is, in, is an interesting one. Next unto him repaired Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the ruler of the half part of Jerusalem, he and his daughters. So it's not just men. You've got um, this man named um, Shalom and his daughters working on the wall. Verse 13, the valley gate was repaired by Hanan. And verse 14, the dung gate by Malchiah and others. The, verse 15, the gate of the fountain repaired Shalom and, and others. Verse 16, after him repaired Nehemiah. Not the Nehemiah, were the, the namesake of the book, a different Nehemiah. Uh, verse 17, after him repaired the Levites and You've got Rehum and some others. After eight, and verse 18, after him, repaired their brethren. Uh, then you've got verse 19. Next to him, repaired Ezer, the son of Jeshua. Verse 20, you've got Barak, the son of Zabai. And verse 21, after him, repaired Merimoth. Verse 22, after him, repaired the priests, the men of the plain. And it goes on and on and on. And some are named 38 specific names altogether. These are like those who might be on the Vietnam Memorial. You know, these, one, these get a name. You've got names like Eliashib and Zachar and Meshulam, and some are building the fish gate, which is likely where the, the gate closest to the fish market, where they would have brought the fish in, um, the fishermen every day to the market. You've got Jehoiada fixing a gate, and Malkijah, uh, these towers. Others were named, and I'm not going to try to pronounce all of them. Uh, 38 to be exact. Some were described by where they came from. You've got other groups of people or people groups listed. You've got men from Jericho and the Tekoites and the, inhab the inhabitants of Zenoa. Some were simply called, like I read in verse 22, the men of the plain. That's all they're listed as. Some were described by their occupation. Uh, verse 22, again, just says the priests. Verse 32, down toward the end, talks about the goldsmiths and the merchants. Uh, they're not listed by name. They're not listed by what they repaired. They're not even listed by where they came from. They're listed by their occupation. They were goldsmiths or merchants or priests. But there's another group I'd like to highlight this evening. You know, Nehemiah likely wasn't written down until about 400 B.C., which would have been about 45 years after the events here of Nehemiah. That means it could have been 45-plus years before these acts were recorded on paper. And I want to give you a scenario using a narrative tonight. 
And if you don't know what a narrative is, it's just a, a sermon or a story, I should say, um, that kind of maybe uses a little bit of creative license. So let's say that there is a 20-year-old and he's helping rebuild the wall here in Nehemiah 3. He, let's say, we'll, we'll just say that he was a shepherd in the land and he had a heart to see God's city be restored to all of its glory. And we're going to give him a good Jewish name. We'll call him Simeon. And he grew up under the shadow of Jerusalem. About 90 years before this, his family had been some of the first to come back from Persia and be released from the Persians back to Jerusalem from captivity. His great-grandfather, Simeon's great-grandfather, had been one of the key builders of the temple. So it greatly pained him. Here's Simeon, this 20-year-old zealous young shepherd uh, who, who watches Jerusalem in disrepair, and he knows the, the, the fight and the sacrifice that his great-grandfather and his grandfather had put in to see Jerusalem rebuild and to work on the walls, and now it's just in disrepair. And as a 20-year-old, Simeon was at that first meeting there in Nehemiah chapter 2, when Nehemiah stood up and said, come and let us build the wall. He was so zealous, actually. He was one of the first to respond with, let us rise up and build. He's that guy. I'm thankful for those kind of guys. You know, when the work began, Simeon was one of the first ones there every morning. He put in the hours. He put in the days and weeks. He didn't have a lot of expertise in rebuilding a wall, uh, but he was just going to be there to be a help and to be a blessing and do whatever it took. He worked as hard as anybody. He got to see the wall finished. He even had a tinge of pride that he got to be one of the men, the main guys in his mind that got to work on the wall. I mean, he was one of the guys that, by the end of it, people were coming to him and asking for him to come and help them with certain projects. Now let's fast forward 45 years or so. Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah have been recorded. They've been written down. He's now 65 years old, and his grandkids are asking him to tell them about how the walls were rebuilt. They come and they sit on his lap and they say, Grandpa, tell us about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Tell us what happened. We know you were there, so tell us. So he gets his hands on a copy, and, and it's been a while since he's talked about it, so he's excited that, that he's got these scrolls, these copies of a scroll from Ezra, and he's going to sit down with his grandkids, and he's going to read about the rebuilding of the wall. You know, Ezra had written out the history of both the temple and the walls being rebuilt. He had recently put it all together, and now he's got a copy in his hand. So he sits down, and his grandkids kind of gather around him, and some sit on his lap, and he starts reading the history of the Jews' return and how God had blessed their endeavor to rebuild the city and rebuild its walls. And as he gets to the part about Nehemiah returning to Jerusalem to rebuild and repair the walls, he starts to get excited. Because he knows the part that he had a hand in is coming up. This is the part he got to be there for. So he gets to this section uh, around chapter 3. He can hardly contain himself. I mean, he's a grandpa, but he's excited. He's telling this story to his kids. He's getting into it. And the first name that he comes to in verse, in verse 1, it says, Then Eliashib. And he stops. He says, I remember Eliashib. He was the priest in those days. He was a great guy. Hard worker. I mean, everyone followed him. Everyone loved him. Then he goes on. He reads about the men of Jericho. And he stops and he tells his grandkids, those guys, they worked hard. I, I could hardly keep up with them. And he reads name after name. And Merimoth and Jaden and, and Shalom and Barak. And he reads about groups that came 
from certain tribes and places. You've got the men of Jericho and the Tekoites and the men of Gibeon and the Nethanims, all these people. And he's just so excited about it. He, he reads about people that had certain occupations, the goldsmiths and the priests and the merchants. Even Shalom gets a mention in verse 12, and he takes special note of that because he married one of those daughters. I thought we'd get some chuckles out of that. Well, maybe not. Simeon married one. Of, he looked in, he's like, man, those daughters know how to work. And so he went after one and caught her. They'd been married for about 40 years, but she had passed away a few years earlier. So he gets to the part about Shalom and his daughters and, and gets a little choked up about it. As he gets down to the end of the chapter, so basically his wife got a mention. How cool is that? And as he gets down to the end of the chapter, he starts to get a little bit anxious because maybe they're saving his name for the very end because of all that he accomplished and how, how everyone relied on him to go do things for them and he was the guy, you know? He gets to the last couple sentences and his heart is racing He's looking for Simeon, Simeon, Simeon. It's got to be here somewhere. But the last few verses, he gets to verse 31, and it says, After him repaired Malchiah the goldsmith's son, under the place of the Nephanims and of the merchants, over against the gate Mifkad, and to the going up of the corner, and between the going up of the corner under the sheep gate repaired the goldsmiths and the merchants. And the next verse is, says it came to pass when Sanballat. Talking about the enemies again. See, and he's thinking, wait, wait a second. I, I, hold on. He goes back and he starts to read again. He's like, I, I just probably missed it, you know. Uh, maybe my name, I just kind of skimmed over it. I didn't see it. And he goes back and reads it again. No Simeon. He's like, how, how can this be? And I worked harder than anybody. I was up first. I slept the least. I never missed a day. I mean, Nehemiah even came to me specifically about a couple of tasks that were really important and he wanted me to help with him. How did I not make the list? And what poor Simeon fails to realize and what we can't miss is that for every person named specifically, someone didn't get mentioned. For everyone described by where they came from, someone got left out. For all those described by what they repaired and the location of their wall and their part of the wall, there, was, there were those working next to them that missed the list. For all the daughters that got mentioned, plenty of sons did not. And in God's work, folks, some people never get named. I mean, no tribe, no occupation, no spot on the wall, not even a mention in a general category. You see, for every soldier listed on the Vietnam Memorial, there are remnants of another soldier on some battlefield in the southeast or overseas, buried and long forgotten. I mean, one gets his legacy etched in stone, while the, another is unnamed in Arlington, Virginia. But even more obscure than that, some are not remembered at all. It doesn't mean they didn't sacrifice. It doesn't mean they failed to do their job. It doesn't mean they weren't appreciated. It simply means that there is no record of their service on earth. But let me remind you of something tonight. God knows about every soldier. God knows about every laborer. We live before God. 
And I know that we have to fight the urge to desire to be known. That's just part of our human nature because it's human to wish to be recognized. But God's work is not about accolades. It's not, it's not about recognition. Our service to God is just that. It is to God. And it is our duty not to seek attention in serving Him, but to seek to please Him in our service. In God's work, we have to be willing to be one of the unnamed because we're not in this to gain a legacy that's etched in stone. We engage in God's work, number one, before God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. The cross is our great equalizer. We're all the same when it comes to our position in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we have all the same abilities. It doesn't mean that I have the same strengths as you or you have the same weaknesses as me. It doesn't mean we have all the same influence. It doesn't mean we have all the same talents. But when our standard for serving is God's glory and not our own, it doesn't matter if you have a million dollars or all the talent in the world or you've got zero dollars and no abilities. It's not about us and our resources. We're all sinners saved by grace and we do what we do for God's glory and His glory alone. You know, there's great diversity among God's people. And I'm thankful for that. And I know diversity is kind of a catchword or a buzzword these days. It doesn't mean, diversity does not mean that we can live however we want and everybody just has to accept it. That's not the point. What I'm saying is, though, that as I look around here and I see individual after individual that comes from a different background and a different place and a, a non-Christian home ra- being raised in, in a Christian home and a pastor's uh, daughter and and a deacon's son in a Christian school and a public school and somebody in the military and somebody who's been in prison and somebody who used to roam the streets and somebody who, who's uh, sheltered as could be. There's a diversity among God's people and we ought to embrace the fact that God can bring a broad spectrum of people together into one local church body, give us a mission and the grace to work together in Christ. We ought to be thankful for that. First Peter 2, Peter said, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people. And he says this, That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our job is not to point to ourselves. Our job is not to get the glory. Our job is not to get the attention. It's not to get the focus. We are called to show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness Unto his marvelous light. That's our job. It's about God's glory. We're not here to point to ourselves, but to God. So we're engaging in God's work for his glory. Number two, we engage in God's work not to be seen of men. And this is similar, but it's different. We engage in God's work for God's glory, but we engage in God's work not to be seen of men. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. As to the Lord and not unto men. Matthew 6 verse 1. Jesus said. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men. To be seen of them. Otherwise ye have no reward of your father which is in heaven. We're not doing what we do for each other. We're doing it serving as to the Lord. This is not a competition. We're not here to serve and climb ladders. We must always have as our motivation to do what we do before God. No matter who sees it. No matter who appreciates it. No matter whether or not we ever get recognized for it. You know, that thought should help those 
with maybe those who don't have a desirable position. You know, that thought, this thought should help you if you don't think that you're in a position that's all that important. And let me just tell you, uh, don't be discouraged. Serve as to the Lord. This is also helpful for those that may have a more public or, or maybe what some would call a more desirable position. Don't put too much stock in your position. We serve as to the Lord. Third, we engage in God's work because of what God has done for us. 1 Samuel 12, 24 is one of my favorite verses. It says, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart for consider how great things he has done for you. Here's why you serve. Here's why you give your heart to his work. Here's why you serve God with all of your heart is because you think about what he's done for you. We engage in God's work because of what he's done for us. Whether or not we get credit, whether or not we get recognized, whether or not we're ever seen of a man, we serve God because of the cross. It's about the cross. He says in Romans 12, Paul did, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your what? reasonable service when you consider God's mercy and you consider what he's done for us and you consider the sacrifice that he made it is the very least that we could do to give him our entire life that is our reasonable service we need no more motivation to serve God than this he gave all for us the least we should do in return is to give our all back to him when we consider that without Christ's sacrifice, we would be eternally condemned. We should be thankful to serve anywhere, in any capacity. We should serve because we're redeemed, not because we want to be recognized. We should serve because we're redeemed, not because we want to be recognized. This list in Nehemiah reminds me of 1 Corinthians 12. Let's turn over there, 1 Corinthians 12. It's good for us to remember that in the work of God, in which we're now engaged, which is the work of the local church, we may not ever be in the position that we prefer. And we may not ever get the recognition that we desire, and sometimes we may not get the recognition that we think that we even we deserve. But if we view our role through the lens of a passage like 1 Corinthians 12, it, helps, it starts to help us to come to terms with our role. And this is similar maybe to what I preached when I first came and was talking about everyone's role and I had the, the Wasson boys and the other guys building a pyramid. That, we should do that again sometime. That was fun. But look at verse 18. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. It says, But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. You realize that you're here at Eastside Baptist Church not by accident but by God's providence. You're here at Eastside Baptist Church because this is where he wanted you to be. You're here, he placed you here, he set you here for a reason. And when you consider that, then for us to be discontent with our position in the body is to cast doubt on God's divine involvement in the body. That if we trust God's sovereignty both in our position and in our recognition, we put ourselves in a place where we can be used to our greatest capacity because he's in charge of putting us here, and then second, receive our greatest reward, because he notices. 
For us to be discontent is to say to God, I'm not sure that I trust your plan either in me being set into the body or the place that I've been called to serve. For us to cast doubt on that is to cast doubt on God's divine providence. And listen, I'm not, a, I'm not Calvinist tonight, but I do believe in God's sovereignty. I don't think that applies to man's free will and salvation. But I do believe that he is a sovereign God. And he put you here at Eastside Baptist Church for a reason, on purpose. You're here for a reason, and you have a place to serve. Don't cast doubt on that. Accept the role that God has given you, and then be you, that will allow you to be used to your greatest capacity. If it's his plan to serve where you are, why would you want to be somewhere else? If it's, if it's his plan to serve where you are, and you serve faithfully, you will receive the greatest rewards you could because you're serving faithfully where he put you. As you read 1 Corinthians 12, you realize that every person has a different role and a different place. Look back in verse 14. It says, for the body is not one member, but many. And I'll just reiterate uh, what I said earlier. A church's strength is in the diversity of its members. There are a lot of people involved. There are different backgrounds and different strengths and different weaknesses Different gifts, some active in leadership, some, some are out front, some are doing things in front of the public eye or, or the church eye and they're singing in choir or singing specials or, or praying here and they're doing things that others see. But there are some, and I'm thankful for these as well, especially for those seasoned saints who maybe can't do anything in the public eye like they used to, but behind the scenes, they're praying as fervently and as lovingly and as passionately as any of us are serving where we are. And I'm thankful that we each have different roles. And if we have any older folks in here tonight, your role may be different than it was 30 years ago, but it's no less important. Some do the visible things and others are behind the scenes. Other, some do the small things that nobody else sees. It's all important. Look at verse 15. For if the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Uh, and if the ear shall say, because I'm not the eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, that'd be weird. <laughs> but where were the hearing? If there was just a big eye, nobody could hear. If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? I mean, these are good questions, Paul. Thank you for bringing these up. It's common sense. Verse 19, and if they were all one member, where were the body? If we all did the same thing, if we all had the same gift, if we all had the same strength, and we all had the same weaknesses, we would be a pretty imbalanced local church, wouldn't we? God brings the diversity some are the hand, some are the fingers, some are the feet, and some are the ears and the nose and the eyes, and some are the mouth, and we all have a different role to play. God puts you here for a reason, to, to embrace the gifts that you have and the strengths and the skills and the passions that you have to be used in this local church body. And you should embrace the role that God has placed you in. You should say, these are my strengths, this is my heart, I want to serve God where I'm at and I'm going to. If, we're all, if there's no feet, we can't walk. If there are no eyes, we can't see. If there are no ears, we can't hear. We need every person not just to embrace their role, but to embrace the fact that God had a hand in them being in that role. Verse 20, he says, But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be feeble are necessary. 
Those members of the body which seem to be feeble, they're necessary because God put them here. He has a reason for them being here. Verse 23, those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts, our good, attractive parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And here's how it's lived out, verse 26. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Listen, we're all in this together. Every role is important to the function of the body and the advancement of God's work. We strengthen each other. We help each other. At times we comfort each other. We lift each other up. We speak the truth in love when it's needed. We speak with grace all the time. We unify around the fact that God put us here and you must have an important reason and role for me to be in this local church. And I say all of this because you may not be noticed. And it's important for us to get this because I've seen it happen in churches before when someone doesn't get noticed and it causes an issue of unity. And you may be one of the ones that sometime, and listen, it's not on purpose, it's not deliberate, but you may not be noticed. And you may not be recognized. You may never be asked to sing a special or teach a class. You may have decorated something and no one said anything. You may have cleaned something up that nobody pointed out. You may have done something that's an extremely important thing to this church, but nobody ever noticed. And listen, if in 2,000 years, the happenings of Eastside Baptist Church around 2019, if they're ever written down in a book, you may give your all to the work and you may build a part of the wall, but you may not get mentioned while somebody laboring right next to you on the wall gets their name etched in stone. But listen, just like the tomb of the unknown soldier being unnamed doesn't mean you've been forgotten. If you've served as to the Lord, faithfully, selflessly, he has taken notice. And your contributions, named or unnamed, if done for his glory, will be recognized. Maybe not now, maybe not in your lifetime, maybe not anytime soon. But there are no unnamed servants in heaven. There's a trend today of being famous because you're famous. There's a lot of people, the advent of the internet has given people this opportunity to have this famous name without earning it. It's ridiculous. And listen, everyone's trying to get famous and they're trying to, to be noticed and they're trying to get a name even just for 15 minutes. But I'd rather be unnamed here and have a part in God's eternal work then have a name now and no reward in heaven. So I exhort you tonight to get on the wall in labor. Work next to somebody in labor. And if your name gets listed specifically, so be it. But if it gets named just in your people group, that's fine too. And if it gets named just by what you rebuilt, that's okay. And if it gets named just about the part of the wall that you worked on or the people group that you're in or the, the occupation that you have, that's fine. 
Just rise up and build. And even if you never get noticed, serve as unto the Lord. Because he never misses or forgets a laborer. And it reminds me tonight of, of a hymn. Five twenty-five. You don't have to turn there, just, but you probably know it. Little as much when God is in it. In the harvest field now ripen, there's a work for all to do. Hark, the voice of God is calling to the harvest, calling you. Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown and you can win it if you'll go in Jesus' name. Does the place you're called to labor seem so small and little known, or maybe even unknown? Well, it is great if God is in it and he'll not forget his own. When the conflict here is ended, and our race on earth is run, he will say, if we are faithful, we just serve as to the Lord. Welcome home, my child, well done. Sing it. Little is much when God is in it, Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown and you can win it if you'll go in Jesus' name. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.